You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 23rd of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Alliance Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, the EU is struggling to agree on a tenth package of sanctions on Russia, which is due to be announced to coincide with the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine invasion tomorrow. Also ahead, what kind of support does Ukraine need for rebuilding and how much will it cost? The World Bank did a detailed calculation last summer, and according to their estimate, Ukraine needed $350 billion last summer. Now, since then, we've seen more destruction. As evidence of Chinese activity in the Arctic is confirmed, why is Beijing interested in the high north? And how much of a security risk does this pose? And our own Fernando Augusto Pacheco will join us once again to look at singles charts in one part of the world. Where are you taking us today, Faye? Privet Georgina. Today we are, in fact, looking at the Ukrainian pop charts. Absolutely. Slava Ukraini. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Tomorrow marks a year since Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. Since the 24th of February last year, the European Union has imposed nine different sanctions packages on Russia. But the bloc is struggling to agree on another set of measures today, designed to make financing the war more difficult. Well, joining me on the line is Suzanne Lynch, who's chief Brussels correspondent for Politico. Suzanne, many thanks for coming on the programme again. How much has changed in Brussels in the past year? Well, I mean, I think a huge amount has changed. Um, sometimes the EU is criticised for moving slowly on issues. They always have to get agreement between 27 different countries. But over the last year, we've seen some radical changes, really, in, in terms of the EU. We've seen a huge recalibration of energy and how energy is sourced and a move away from dependency on Russian gas. Uh, we've seen a very swift reaction to the numbers of refugees coming into Europe, whereby millions of Ukrainian refugees were not only allowed to enter the EU, but were allowed to legally live and work and children go to school in the EU. This all happened very quickly. And then we had these series of sanctions packages. The first and second sanctions packages were agreed in the days after the Russian invasion, so around a year ago. And then throughout the year, we've seen these succession of sanctions packages designed to hit the Russian economy. And what are the main packages in place and how well are they working? Well, one of the issues that the European Commission now is looking at is the whole issue of uh, implementation of sanctions and whether there is any circums, you know, circums, like people using loopholes maybe to circumvent the sanctions, different countries using that. Um, and essentially companies may be trying to evade this. It recently appointed a new sanctions envoy Um to look at countries in Russia's neighbourhood, for example, to see if uh, goods were entering the country via the back door. Um, so, you know, while the EU has seen its trade fall off with Russia, there has been spikes in trade with other countries like Armenia, places like that. So that's one of what they're looking at. And then they've seen uh, sanctions on a whole range of issues from individuals, from members of the Russian parliament, uh, to uh, companies and to oligarchs. 
uh, as well as different companies and energy providers you being, for example, uh, locked out of the SWIFT banking system, those kind of things too. Mm. So what do we expect to come out of the meeting today? What are they pushing for? Well, they're trying to get agreement on what will be the 10th sanctions package. And obviously the pressure is coming from the fact that tomorrow is the one year anniversary of the war. And European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen signaled that the EU would be ready with this 10th sanctions package and we're expecting some kind of a coordinated announcement with other countries perhaps the US and the UK so we're uh, due there's going to be some kind of a G7 ministers meeting later today to try and agree on sanctions uh, at the moment there is some disagreement about uh, the exact details of these sanctions packages we know we don't know the details we do know a lot that has been agreed already so more russian individuals will be included and uh, more banks including russia's largest private bank alpha bank will be included um ban on russian nationals serving on boards that kind of thing but there is disagreement about some issues, and in particular, uh, Ukraine had called for nuclear companies, including Rosatom, the Russian company, to be sanctioned in some way. But there's been pushback on that, particularly from Hungary, uh, which is dependent on those on nuclear rods and, and depending on that energy, ultimately. Uh, so Hungary, it looks like, which has previously blocked some of the EU sanctions packages, has again seems to be a sticky point. It's not alone, but it, it, it's the most vocal voice around the EU table on this. And do you think that the balance of power is changing uh, a, a swivel from the, the Franco-German axis with Eastern European countries, with the, apart from Hungary, of course, taking more of a lead? Absolutely. I think that's been one of the fallouts of this war, that the centre of gravity and the centre of power, in a sense, has shifted east. The very fact that President Biden visited Poland this week, not Paris or Berlin or Brussels, I think signifies the role Poland and those East European members are playing, both as prominent members of NATO and also of the EU. Uh, they have been, particularly the Baltic nations in Poland, have been saying from the beginning, they have been kind of driving the conversation here in Brussels, calling for a, a stronger response uh, to the war in Ukraine. Um, not they have not always won that battle for example we know on the debate on fighter jets at the moment lithuania has for ages been called for for the need to send in fighter jets but other countries the us uk uh france etc have, have pulled back on that that is not happening at the moment um so they're very vocal they're not always uh, in line with what the rest of the western alliance wants but undoubtedly they have been playing a crucial and central role in the Western response since the outbreak of the war. How symbolic do you think it is that the EU agrees to this by the 24th of February? And will they manage? I think they will have to. I think there is going to have to be some kind of an agreement. I think it will look very bad on the EU if they don't. The devil will be in the detail, though. What has been agreed and maybe some concessions they may have made to certain countries or, in fact, have just decided to leave things out, like the nuclear stuff, for example. There's also an issue around diamonds, the sanctioning of diamonds. Belgium, for example, has concerns about that proposal. It's a, you know, Antwerp here in Belgium is a huge centre for the diamond trade. Uh, so whenever you hit anything, some countries are more exposed than others and they want to make sure that their own economies are not hit too much. But I think we'll have some kind of package. The uh, ambassadors are due to meet here again in Brussels this afternoon at around 3 p.m. That meeting will start and we will be looking for some kind of white smoke later this evening. But what it will actually contain will be the key issue. Mm. Now, there are many speculations about how Russia will commemorate the date. What's the feeling in Brussels? Are they expecting a major attack? Well, I mean, there's been growing worries in Kiev and and 
Vladimir Zelensky said that on his recent trip to Europe, that Russia could be uh, planning some kind of an attack, um, perhaps through Belarus, like we saw last year when those Russian uh, tanks and soldiers moved in from the north. Uh, I've been talking to people, to colleagues in Kiev, and a lot of people are saying, you know, the the remaining people in Kiev, a lot of them have left the city in anticipation of a possible attack uh, to mark the anniversary. Um, A lot of the attention militarily is still on Bakhmut and those uh, key places in the east of the country, far east near the Russian border. Uh, Bakhmut is still a centre of fighting, and that would be a huge symbolic victory for Russia if it was to take that, and not the case so far. Uh, But yes, people on high alert for any activity tomorrow. Suzanne, thank you very much indeed. That was Suzanne Lynch, Chief Brussels Correspondent for Politico. Now, here's Monocle's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Israel has carried out airstrikes in the Gaza Strip after Palestinian militants fired rockets at southern Israel. The exchange follows an Israeli raid in the occupied West Bank where at least 11 Palestinians were killed. The US State Department said it was deeply concerned by the large number of injuries and loss of life over the past 24 hours. Google has announced it is rolling out tests in Canada that block access to news content for some users. In what it says is a test run of a potential response to the government's online news bill. The Online News Act, introduced in April, laid out rules to force platforms like Facebook and Google to pay news publishers for their content. The tech giant confirmed that the tests limit the visibility of Canadian and international news to varying degrees. And Japanese car manufacturers Toyota and Honda have agreed to give their workers the biggest pay rises in decades. It's the latest signal of an upward move in wages in Japan, as the highest inflation in more than four decades eats into the purchasing power of households. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thanks, Emma. Canada's military said it recently discovered evidence of Chinese surveillance operations in the Arctic. The revelation comes after a suspected Chinese spy balloon floating over American airspace was shot down by the US military. China and Canada are not alone in their interest in the region. Arctic nations Finland, Russia, Norway, Sweden and the US are all keen to unlock untapped potential in the high north. Well, I'm joined by Alessio Patalano, who's professor at King's College London and an expert on Asian defence, to tell us more. Alessio, what evidence has there been of Chinese interest? Um, hello, Georgina. Well, I mean, there, there, there's a number of things to say. Um, let, let's, let's put it into three sort of main, uh, um, uh, um, three main points. First of all, China has long declared its interest has as, as defined itself as a near-Arctic uh, nation. That's a very important point because it, it already announced its interest in the Arctic Council and engaging with Arctic countries um, for quite some time. So that should come as a no surprise that as a country with a declared interest in the region, um, it has started to develop the means to operate more regularly. Then the second element of this, of course, is this is not just a declaration of a political interest, but also has been followed up by the development of icebreakers um, and research vessels capable of operating and exploring uh, the Arctic. Um, And again, that's been sort of organized for quite some time. Um, Research in marine science, um, it's been an important element of Xi Jinping's agenda for the development of China as a maritime power. And within this context, of course, the Arctic being one of the places from where 
uh, still you can access a significant amount of resources as well as use it for the transit and the transports of goods, uh, let alone military questions, which I'll touch in a minute, um, it's, 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 it's again very important. And the third piece is how the Arctic speaks to uh, Chinese ambition to become a more significant strategic actor in international affairs. And of course, from a military perspective, access to the Arctic, particularly uh, ballistic nuclear submarines operations in the Arctic, would enable China to expand greatly um, its potential, the potential reach of its, of its strategic assets. Mm. So what measures have been taken to curtail and monitor those Chinese activities? Well, so first of all, it depends very much where the activities are taking place because the Arctic remains a, a space open um, <laughs> to the international community. So you want to be very careful about um, uh, 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 you know, the, the type of constraints that you put in place. Perhaps um, what the, uh, the, the article seemed to be suggesting is that um, the, uh, the surveillance activities were being conducted very close, if not within um, areas under Canadian claimed uh, space in the Arctic. So I think we need to have a little bit more of a clarity about where exactly these uh, activities were being conducted before sort of coming to a judgment. Having said so, I think um, this is part of a broader review conducted in Canada and um, to have a better assessment of the type of security challenges that the country faces at the moment. Mm. I mean, this is not new, though. China has been sending uh, equipment to the region, has been uh, putting down buoys, for instance, for some time. Absolutely. So, again, this is a part, it depends very much on where you want to place this particular piece of news in a broader context, uh, because we've known um, uh, for quite some time that, um, and, and China has declared its intention to gain a better understanding of the world in which it, it wishes to operate. So, why the Arctic should be any particular sort of uh, different um, um, but in this respect, as I said, I think it's, what is really interesting is that this story is coming out on the back of the um, uh, the balloons networks that where it's been revealed. And so here, what I think we're discussing um, is that space between not just surveillance in international airspace or on the high seas, but perhaps also surveillance conducted into sovereign spaces, which would be a completely different kettle fish altogether. Um, and also the scale and the extensive nature of these um, operations conducted. Mm. With so many countries having a vested interest in the Arctic, what do you expect to happen there in the future? Um, and that is an excellent uh, question, Georgina, and I think this is the question that we will have to continue to debate uh, uh, and, and certainly to engage much more in the foreseeable future. And very much it's linked to uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the climate change challenge and how that is affecting the ice caps and how is that sort of leading to a genuinely potential, uh, uh, very significant transformation of the Arctic, not as a place that is predominantly inaccessible, but as a place that it becomes much more accessible, both in terms of living conditions and therefore human migration in the region, as well as in access to the resources and the navigational elements to it. This might actually really prompt a serious rethink about how we consider the Arctic as a space, as a geographical space, and as a geopolitical space. And I think what the Chinese are showing us, are telling us, is that when that happens, because what the projections are, is not a question of if, but rather when, when that happens, the Chinese want to be ready 
to partake fully to that conversation. Alessio, thank you very much indeed. That's Alessio Patalano there. And this is The Briefing on Monocle 24. back with a briefing on Monocle 24 and it's time to talk business with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Hello Ewan. Hi Georgina, good to speak to you. Uh, Investors are focused on the world's most important central bank. Tell us more. Yes, we've had minutes from the US Federal Reserve. Now the headline is not very exciting. The minutes said that almost all officials agreed it was appropriate to raise US interest rates by a quarter percentage point, which is what they did, while a few Uh, quote, uh, favoured or could have supported a bigger half percentage point interest rate hike. Now, uh, the minutes at the time uh, looked like they were pretty dull. And the situation was, I guess, pretty dull three weeks ago. It looked like there was uh, progress in bringing down inflation. Uh, Fed uh, participants said that we would need more interest rate hikes, but uh, the end uh, is coming around to sight. But an awful lot seems to have changed. Three weeks has proved to be a long time in economics. We've had a really, really hot uh, print on jobs. So the US economy created 520,000 jobs in January. Expectations were something in the region of 180,000, maybe 200,000. It created more than half a million jobs. Wage growth is continuing apace. Uh, US wages are rising by 6%. Uh, unemployment now at its lowest since 1969. So no sign of calling in the jobs market, which of course is a good thing, but it is tricky for the Fed in its fight against inflation. And talking of the fight against inflation, inflation is coming down. We're now seven months off its peak, but it's not coming down as fast as we expected. The reading we got at the beginning of February uh, of 6.4% over the course of the past year uh, was uh, a less of a slowdown than economists were forecasting. So since that meeting three weeks ago, the US economy has proved to be very resilient, which is good, but it also means that the Fed is going to have to keep its foot on the brakes when it comes to monetary policy. Uh, And that is uh, bad news if you've got a mortgage and it's bad news uh, for investors. Mm. Now, there's some trouble for one rather large office landlord. Yeah, we've been speaking to a lot of bank bosses on Bloomberg over the last few weeks. It's been earnings season. We've been asking them about uh, defaults on mortgages. And so far, it seems, uh, in Europe at least, there are not too many people defaulting on their mortgages. We're not seeing too many signs of debt distress as interest rates rise. One uh, office owner in uh, the US has defaulted on its $1.7 billion mortgage. The company is Columbia Property Trust. It's got a number of big offices in San Francisco, New York, Boston and Jersey City. And the problem for this particular company is most of its debt was floating rate debt, which uh, rises with interest rates. Now, that was a pretty smart strategy over the last 10 years when interest rates were near zero. But you can imagine if your mortgage, your $1.5 billion dollar mortgage is tied to interest rates things are looking uh, pretty ropey at the moment they say that most like most office owners we're addressing the unique and unprecedented challenges currently facing our asset class because as well as rising interest rates uh, the demand for offices is variable at best and particularly for old offices with less good facilities they are really struggling during the pandemic uh, a number of companies uh, moved out and companies which are continuing with office space which of course is is the most they want flashy offices they want nice offices and they want green offices so the older offices uh, are really struggling to find tenants ewan thank you very much indeed that was our friend ewan potts from bloomberg 
You're back with The Briefing on Monocle 24. As we've been discussing, tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Perhaps one of the most pressing questions will be how to rebuild Ukraine as civilians try to re-establish their lives. In part four of our Ukraine series, Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov sat down with the chief economist Bieta Yavorshik from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and began by asking about the key challenges that Ukraine faces as it sets out to rebuild its war-ravaged infrastructure and economy. Of Ukraine. The first one is stable peace, stable resolution to the conflict. The second one is institutional improvement in Ukraine. And the third one is money. The third one is the easiest to resolve because the international community stands ready to support Ukraine. I'm also optimistic about this, the second ingredient, institutions, because the prospect of EU accession provides an opportunity for Ukraine to get on this reform path and improve the quality of its governance. So the most challenging ingredient is finding a stable solution to the conflict. If we look at the work that the bank that you represent does, give us a picture of how you support Ukrainian businesses and the authorities and help the business community in the country to thrive. At the moment, we are focusing on supporting Ukraine here and now on helping the country make it through the winter. We help to keep lights on, to keep heating on, to keep trains running. We support international trade transactions, so imports of vital parts and components, pharmaceuticals. We also provide emergency liquidity to firms. And our loan Energo, the state energy company, finances emergency repairs that are absolutely necessary for the functioning of the country. And in this way, we are directly contributing to the reconstruction effort. Because if we help to make conditions as bearable as possible for the Ukrainian population, we are going to avoid another wave of refugees. And that's going to position Ukraine better for reconstruction because the loss of human capital will be smaller because skills and people will be in the country when the time for reconstruction comes. What are the key post-war priorities for Ukraine in order to attract foreign investment and to help generate economic growth? Ukraine has a lot of going for it. It's a large country on the European doorstep. It has educated workforce. It is going to be inevitably a very attractive market for foreign direct investment. What it's lacking is institutions. The prospect of EU accession offers an opportunity for the country to embark on an ambitious reform path. Typically, it's very difficult for elected politicians to focus on long-term goal simply because their terms are short. What the EU accession offers is the need to answer only one question. Do you want to become part of the EU? And once the society makes that decision, the path is set because what needs to be done is prescribed by the EU.
So it cuts out all these discussions. It cuts out the possibility of populist interests derailing the reform process. And we have seen how well the accession worked in the context of the Eastern European member states. And because now millions of Ukrainians have seen firsthand how much better countries like Poland function, how they have achieved prosperity over the last 30 years, they've seen the proof that the process works. Do you have some kind of an estimate as to how much funds Ukraine will need to rebuild? The World Bank did a detailed calculation last summer, and according to their estimates, Ukraine needed $350 billion dollars last summer. Now, since then, we've seen more destruction. It's a huge figure, and I think it is very clear that international community, multilateral development banks, bilateral aid is not going to be enough. We are going to need private sector participation. And here, the EBRD can play an important role in mobilizing private investment in Ukraine. We have been active in Ukraine for three decades. We have been the largest institutional investor there. We've had offices in several places with more than 100 team members on the ground. So we stand ready to do it. And the way we can do it is by investing jointly with private investors from Western countries. Our participation gives them comfort We do very strict due diligence. We serve as a seal of approval, as a signal that a country is open for business. When you look at Ukraine um, and the country's economy, what have you identified as the key growth sectors with most potential in the country? Ukraine has potential in several areas. It is a country with a lot of fertile land. It is a breadbasket of Europe. So certainly uh, agriculture and agro-processing are an obvious area. The second area is manufacturing. We are witnessing now the process of reshaping of global value chains as firms are interested in diversifying their supply base. And this process has only started now. And it's going to take a while. European firms will be looking for suppliers in the European neighborhood. So Ukraine can have the potential to become a manufacturing workshop of Europe. Chief economist Bieta Yavorshik there from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Speaking to Monocle's Petri Burtsov. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. The concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality. 
for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. You're back with The Briefing here on Monocle 24. And once again, uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco will see what songs are making it to the top five in some part of the world. Hello, Fernando. Hello, Georgina. Great to be here. Uh, now, very topical choice today. A very topical choice because I'm heading to Ukraine. And i got to be really honest with you, actually. I always enjoy the Ukrainian music scene. I think it's always fun, at times experimental. But looking at the top five, which we will be looking in a second, you can see that the war had an effect on the music industry, even in the themes that they mention in the song. So there's a lot of things about longing or even songs that are quite mil- military, uh, you know, vibes about, you know, we have to protect our country. So it's quite an interesting to see how it affected. Not everything. There is a little exception here, which we'll find out. Uh, but shall we start at number five? Yeah, absolutely. What is it? It's a beautiful ballad. He's only 17, actually. Actually, but he's doing very well. Uh, it's a ballad. It's called Waiting at Home, of course, related to the war as well. This is Yaktak and Dovi with Waiting at Home. <laughs> Seventeen, wow. Just seventeen, and the songs, there's no blanket warmer than your hand, you know. Uh, I will catch the last train when she's waiting for me at home. So it does have this connection with the war. Because, you know, that's what many Ukrainians are leaving now. So a lot of families are separated. And and the shows in the track. But yeah, very mature 17-year-old. Uh, I mean, but he's been studying music since he was a kid. So mm. yeah, uh, definitely a big talent mm. there from, from Ukraine. I was just talking to a Ukrainian author last night, Oksana Zabushko, and she was saying that you can see that in Ukrainian literature too. Mm. There will be this kind of great big fault line in pre and post uh, the war uh, in literature kind of covering that period. You'll absolutely see it like like barks on a tree, ring barks on a tree or striations in rock, won't that, you? That's very interesting. Actually, we should do a show perhaps in a few years' time. Hopefully, the war will be over and I think there'll be something interesting uh, to look at as well. But number four is a different change of tone. I mean, he's one of the biggest hip-hop artists uh, in Ukraine. So, of course, the song you know, it's actually it's actually very sad. Dedicated to his friend Valentin, who died uh, during the war. Um, but it's a little bit more punchier. I mean, he says, "We will liberate village after village," and he keeps mentioning some of the villages that have been destroyed. A very powerful song, very patriotic as well. It's by uh, Skovka with "Hear the Anthem." <laughs> Yeah, cloudy smokes uh, in the clear sky. A very beautiful track as well. And I have to say, I mean, there will be quite a lot of events because tomorrow it's one year since the war started. There will be a video here in London today at Trafalgar Square. It's an event organized by the U.S. Embassy uh, and the, the Embassy of Ukraine, of course. But there will be other events around the world. So mm. Skovka will be performing in Gdansk tomorrow. Uh, probably who performed this song, I'm sure. And uh, there's one tomorrow in London where people are uh, meeting at Holland Park and they'll have candles. A 
and they'll march from there to the Russian embassy. And I believe at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, there's also a candlelight vigil. That's amazing. I think this is so important. And and they're using big names as well. Jamala, who won Eurovision, she will be in Trafalgar Square today as well. So yeah, a lot, lot of interesting events and I think people should go to them. Uh, and number three, Georgina, that's interesting. I told you how the music industry have changed. Uh, Dora Fever, she's a pop singer, you know, she's great, uh, all glitzy and, you know, I really like some of her tracks. But even in her new track, there is something about what we've been discussing. It's called WhatsApp. Uh, and the reason why it's called WhatsApp, because that's how sometimes Ukrainians are connecting with their families, you know. So, we, as I said, it's a song about separation, uh, distance, d- despair as well. But most of all, love. Uh, let's have a listen to Dora Fever with WhatsApp. Dora Fever there with WhatsApp, and he has an interesting name for a, for a track as well. Hello, do you hear me? It's, it's still quite poppy, that's her style, but completely adapted for what Ukraine is going through at the moment as mm. well. And will many of these make make it onto our playlist? I think so. I think so. I think Dora Fever, perhaps. I mean, you know, we play, we like this kind of pop bots there as well. So, and by the way, if we have any Ukrainian listeners, we do like electropop. I know Ukraine does that incredibly well. Any suggestions? I'm welcome. You know, to to hear the tips. Uh, we love Ukrainian music here. But, you know, they are in a war, but they still enjoy pop music, right? And it's not just Ukrainian artists. And number two, we have actually a song that I like it very much. It is in our playlist, actually. Uh, and I love her raspy voice. It's Miley Cyrus with Flowers. Shall we have a listen? Absolutely. And- And it's a, it's a song about loving yourself. Are you old enough to remember her dad? Yes. I mean, I, I know who her dad is, but I, I was probably not dancing to his Billy songs. Billy Ray Cyrus, Billy Achy, Ray? Breaky Heart. Achy Breaky Heart. A good song, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, who's number one? I mean, number one, uh, it's, I mean, he's the biggest artist, one of the biggest bands in Ukraine at the moment. And I have to say, this song is so powerful. It's a mixture of metal, electronica, and it's really kind of, it's about, uh, you know, defending your country against the evil forces. I mean, it's quite a, a very powerful song. Uh, it's by Antitila and the song's called Bakhmut Fortress. We'll we'll find out a bit more, but let's first play a clip of the song. Motherland, I'm fighting. Wow. And, 
if I may say, he will be performing in Trafalgar Square, he and his band, uh, today, actually, at a special video. And we have a special guest in studio, Georgina. We certainly do. It's our entertainment correspondent. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Laura Kramer. Thank you for coming in. Why are you here, though? <laughs> well, I'm here because I actually interviewed the front man of the band, said band that we were just listening to, Trastopolia, uh, because he is in London, and I got a chance to speak to him about the concert that he's going to do uh, that the band is going to play in order to raise funds for kids whose fathers and whose parents have been killed in battle in Ukraine. And we got to chat, too, about what he'll be doing in London, and including uh, in Trafalgar Square. And also, he'll be heading to the U.S. Embassy House. He's been invited there as well. And he was just telling us about, you know, they went basically from being, he went from being a front man to being on the front line, the whole band. They were paramedics on the front line for a while. And then they were told by the commanders that they could better serve their country by spreading the message about the war and Ukraine and creating music and putting uh, music out into the world. And so they've been traveling mostly through Europe, but throughout the world, spreading the message, appearing on TV shows. You know, they they appeared on a Finnish TV show that he spoke about and how, how important that was for him because uh, he said they recognized that Finland had also once had troubles with Russia and they had, uh, they had overcome that. And so... It was really important to him. So it was really incredible to speak to him. He said that they invited a few famous guests. So you may know that the band has collaborated with, for example, the likes of Ed Sheeran in the past. Ed can't come to the concert because he's in Australia, but they have invited Bono and also James Blunt. Wow. And you have to tell us, when can we listen actually to the interview? All right. So the full interview will be playing tomorrow night on The Daily with Andrew Muller. Laura, thank you. Uh, that's Monocle's Fernando Augusta Pacheca and Laura Kramer. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Marcus Hippie. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Parminchuin, and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. And, of course, special guest appearances by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Laura Kramer. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin, and I'll return on The Globalist uh, at uh, 7am London time tomorrow. But for now, goodbye, and thanks for listening.